you have your Bibles this weekend, turn with me to James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We're going to put the verses up on the side screen. <clears throat> but this weekend, we're going to address what I think is one of our biggest issues when it comes to our relationship with God. The issue is this. If there is a God, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? And I guarantee you, at some point in your life, you've probably asked that question. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've had someone ask you that question. You're like, really, if there really is a God, why is there so much travesty? Why is there so much hurt? Why is there so much pain? And, and this is the thing. Uh, this is crucial to our faith as Christians that we're able to, to get our arms around this, this issue, this topic, because let's be honest, there's nothing like a little pain and suffering to shut down our faith. And when we're going through those times of suffering, when we're going through those trials, those tough times, those times of pain in life, I think there are two major questions that we struggle with. First of all, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And then second, God, when are you going to stop it? God, why is this happening in my life? What did I do to deserve this? But second, God, when are you going to show up? When are you going to intervene? When are you going to step in? God, when are you going to fix this? By the way, uh, I realize uh, as I speak literally to thousands of people this weekend spread out over three campuses, there's a lot of people listening that are going through times of struggle and pain and hurt and trials and tough times. And I want you to know that at Hope, we're sensitive to that. It's one of the reasons that we offer our care and support classes. Uh, they begin this week, classes like divorce care, divorce care for kids, uh, celebrate recovery. If you have any kind of addiction in life, this would be a great uh, class for you to go through. Restore, if there's just brokenness in your life that you can't find healing from. Uh, we also offer things like Marriage Matters, a class about staying in love. I noticed in the bulletin this week, uh, there's support for uh, our military families. There's also support with families families who have special need children. And we, we, we can't fix things. But what we can do is we can come alongside and help you manage and deal with the journey that God is taking you on. You may want to check those things out. But we're going to be talking about that. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? And the reason I feel comfortable addressing this issue uh, is because uh, of who wrote the verses that we're going to look at this weekend. As I said in the beginning of our series, uh, th th this is brilliant. The book of James was written by a guy named James. How about that? You know, I mean, that's, not, that's the kind of truth you're not going to get at other churches, right? And, uh, but what makes this James unique uh, is this James was the half-brother of Jesus. He wasn't a theologian. Uh, he wasn't a philosopher. He wasn't someone who spent years and years and years in a cave, you know, uh, trying to think through and unravel the mysteries of life. James was just your average guy who happened to grow up in the house with Jesus. Okay, just kind of let your mind go there. Wrap your brain around that for a few minutes, what that must have been like. And even though James grew up with Jesus, um, I'm pretty sure as kids, he didn't think there was anything special about Jesus. He probably thought Jesus was just a goody-goody brother that everybody has that never does anything wrong, right? But when Jesus became an adult at the age of 33, 34, he went public with his ministry. Mark tells us that his family kind of turned on him. When Jesus started making these claims in public and doing incredible things and people were following him and he was saying things like, I am the son of God. You know, when he started making statements like that, they thought he was crazy. They thought he was a lunatic. In fact, they tried to put him away, get him out of the public eye because the family, he was an embarrassment to them. And the only thing that made James believe that his brother was who he claimed to be was the fact that Jesus died and James saw it. And three days later, Jesus came back to life. Now, I'm going to tell you, if that happens to my brother, that, that'll get my attention. You know what I'm saying? If my brother dies and comes back to life, I want to be on his team, right? 
And that's when James believed that his half-brother was indeed the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And then James went out, and he spent the rest of his life trying to convince people of that fact. So understand that James comes to us not from the perspective of a great teacher, not from the perspective of a great theologian or a great philosopher or a great leader or even a great writer. James is just your average guy who saw his brother die and come back to life. And from that perspective, he says to Christians, I want to give you the proper response to pain and suffering. Now, I'm just going to warn you. I've already studied this, and uh, I don't like the answer, and you're not going to like it either. But let's, let's look at it. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, James tells us as Christians how to respond to pain and suffering in this life. He sums it up in two words. He says, be patient. Be patient. And I read that, and I'm like, well, James, that's not an answer. That's what you say when you don't have an answer. I don't know what to do. I guess I'll just have to be patient. See, be patient. That's kind of putting off the answer, right? In fact, James goes on to tell us in verse 7 uh, how far he puts off the be patient answer. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. And I'm already, see, I'm all prepared just like you to figure out how to handle pain and suffering in life. And James basically says, just be patient until Jesus comes back. And I hear that, and I'm like, James, are you kidding me? Really? That's the best you got? Be patient. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm not the most patient person in the world. Just ask Laura. I'm willing to be patient for, say, up to an hour, you know, maybe a month if I'm feeling really, really spiritual. But to tell me, be patient until Jesus comes back, that's just not a realistic answer. That's not a realistic response. I mean, I, I, want, a, I want a solution to pain and suffering today. Worst case scenario, tomorrow, right? But you got to understand, James takes us back to a theme that runs all the way through the New Testament. Jesus talked about it. Paul talked about it. John talked about it. Peter talked about it. They all taught this. The ultimate solution to pain and suffering in this life will not be found in this life. The ultimate solution to all of the pain and suffering that we see in the world will not be found in this world. And that's frustrating, especially for Christians, especially for American Christians, because the reality is we want heaven now. I mean, let's be honest. We spend a good deal of our time in life, our money, our energy, trying to experience heaven now. We want a wrinkle-free life now. We want a perfect life now. We want a perfect marriage right now. We want perfect children now. We want a perfect career right now. But no matter how hard we try, you know what happens? Eventually we run out of time. Eventually we run out of youth. We run out of money. We run out of energy. And eventually we all come to the same conclusion. This life ain't heaven. And it's because it was never designed to be heaven. And as much as God hates what's taking place on planet Earth, and as much as we hate what's happening in the world, the truth is this, the ultimate solution to pain and suffering will not be found in this world. It will not be found in this life. So James says, hey, be patient. There's your answer. Be patient until Jesus returns because James says, therein lies the solution that we all long for. And as I said, to be honest, I don't really like that answer any more than you do. And then he gives us an illustration in verse seven. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer, and I'm like, really, James? I'm not sure you're taking this seriously enough. A farmer, that's the illustration? I mean, I got people around me dying. I have people around me 
who have diseases they can't find cures for. There's travesty going on in the world. There are kids walking into schools, kids walking in the movie theaters, kids walking in the malls and shooting each other. I mean, James, we live in a messed up world and the best you can do is give me the illustration of a farmer. Look what he says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. And what James wants us to understand is this, he says, when there's pain and suffering around you, understand there's something going on in your situation. There's something going on in your life. There's something going on behind the scenes that you don't see. There's something going on in your world that you have no control over. And James says, you're like the farmer. Just as the farmer plants the seed, the farmer has to back off. The farmer has to allow the natural, natural process to take place. He can't do anything to speed up that process. James says, you too, just like the farmer. You need to learn as a Christian to be patient. You need to learn how to just back off and how to wait because often God is up to something in your life that you can't see. There's something going on behind the scenes. There's something going on below the surface of your life that you may not understand. And James says, as difficult as it is, as you look at the pain and suffering around your life, as you look at the pain and suffering around the world, your response is to be patient. He says in verse eight, you too, like the farmer, be patient. But then he adds something, he says, and stand firm. And it's interesting, those two Greek words, uh, they mean to stabilize your heart. I think what James is saying is this, in the middle of pain and suffering, if you're there right now, you'll get this, it's easy to get knocked off balance. Even as a Christian, it's easy to begin to doubt. It's easy to begin to wander and to question and even to become critical. It's easy to let pain and suffering uh, become a division between us and God and even between us and the people around us. And James is saying, as long as we look at pain and suffering through the lens of where is God and why doesn't he fix this, why doesn't he do something, James says, you're gonna be off balanced in your heart. You're gonna be out of balance, you're gonna be out of kilter. So you've gotta stabilize, you've gotta recalibrate your heart, you've gotta bring things back into a proper perspective, a proper balance, because you gotta realize that God is up to something that you can't see. And he's gonna develop it in his due time. And really your only response is to be patient. And he gives us the reason in verse eight, because the Lord's coming is near. And I can't help but smile because it was 2,000 years ago that James wrote, the Lord's coming is near. <laughs> and so we sit here this weekend, 2,000 years later, and, and we're like, well, James, listen, would you at least be open to the possibility that maybe you missed it on this one? You know, maybe you missed it a little bit, maybe a bad pizza, but somehow you got this one wrong. But you got to understand, all throughout the New Testament, Christians live with the belief that Jesus could come back at any moment. And the reason that they believed that Jesus could come back any moment was because they actually saw him leave. This wasn't theory to them. Many of these people were actual eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus ascend into heaven. And as hard as it is for us to believe that one day Jesus is going to return to this earth, it was really easy for these first century Christians. Many of them saw him leave. Many of them heard him say, I'll be back. See, it wasn't original with Arnold, that, that original with Jesus, right? So believing that Jesus was going to return, it wasn't a big deal to these guys. They saw him leave, right? So they lived every day thinking, this could be the day. You're in the shower every morning. This could be the day. Bring your best for God today. This could be the day, right? 
By the way, here we are, 2014. Let me just say this as Christians. We need to remember as we live our lives, there is absolutely nothing that's keeping Jesus from returning to this earth. There are no more prophecies that need to be fulfilled. There are no other signs that need to take place. The reality is this. At any moment, Jesus could return. And James's challenge to us is we need to keep our hearts calibrated to that fact. This is when pain and this is when suffering ultimately will come to an end. But James says, I just want to make it very clear. In this world, there's going to be suffering. In this world, there's going to be tribulation. And it's never going to go away to Jesus' returns. And since that's the case, James goes on to tell us how we should treat one another in the meantime. And this is important because isn't it true that pain and suffering can become a wedge between us and the people we love? For example, you may be here this weekend as a married couple, and you are living right now under incredible financial stress. I met a couple walking out last weekend, and they said, thank you so much for your message on giving because this week our bankruptcy is finalized. We're losing everything. But their perspective was, because of your teaching, now we need to go, we realize how to go forward from here and do it right this time. But they were talking about the stress that is put on their marriage. It may not even be your fault. It may not be your spouse's fault. But the reality is that kind of pressure, it can become a wedge between you and your spouse. <laughs> Maybe you're raising a teenager. That can become a wedge between you and your spouse. Mark Twain had it right. When they're 13, put them in a barrel, seal it up, and feed them through the knot hole. When they're 16, plug up the knot hole. See, he, Mark Twain, he figured this out, right? But I guarantee you, if you have a teenager who's living in your home, they are demon-possessed. That's the answer. You, you're asking that question. Yes, they are. They are demon-possessed. And it will drive a wedge if you're not careful in that relationship between mom and dad. Or maybe you're like Lenny and you're taking care of a loved one and you love that person with all your heart. That's not the issue. But you know what happens? Over time, it just begins to wear on you. It wears on you emotionally. It wears on you physically. And before long, that pain and suffering, which nobody's really responsible for, it, it can become a wedge between you and the person that you're caring for, right? So James, he's aware of this kind of reality. So he says in verse 9, don't let that happen. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Don't take it out on one another or you will be judged. Now notice this statement, the judge, and he's referring to Jesus. The judge is standing at the door. And the picture is this. Jesus is at the door. He could come back any moment, anytime he wants to. So James is saying, hey, Christians, you need to live your lives not critical of God, not wondering when is God going to show up and fix this. He says we're to live our lives every day assuming that any moment... Any moment, Jesus could return and he could change all of this. But let's be honest, that's tough, isn't it? In fact, a lot of us are thinking that's, that's not very realistic. Sounds great in theory, but who actually lives this way? I can almost guarantee you, probably less than 1% of our congregation got up this morning and as you were showering and getting dressed, you thought today could be the day. We don't think that way. But let me ask you a question. If we did, do you think it would change how we live our lives? Ooh, if he comes back, I don't want to be doing that. You know that, right? But do you think it would change our perspective if we really believe this could be the day? We just don't think that way. And so James, he gives us three examples to show us that there is a way to live through our misery, through our suffering, through our pains, through our tough times and our trials, and as Christians at the same time, 
continue to maintain our faith. Look at verse 10. He says, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets. Now, we know who the prophets are. You know, they wrote those books in the Old Testament with the funny names that none of us read, right? Those are the prophets, right? He says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, this was basically the life of a prophet. A prophet would show up in a nation that life was good. Economy's up, the market's up, unemployment's down. And these, you know, these ragtime, I mean, Amos, for example, he was a fig picker. I mean, nothing sophisticated about Amos, right? But these prophets would go in before the king and basically say this, king, things are great on the surface, but I'm telling you, if you don't get your act together, and if you don't repent, and if you don't become obedient, and if the people of this nation don't become obedient, God is going to come down hard on you. Well, no king wanted to hear that, so a typical response was, I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to imprison you until you change your, you know, your prophecy. And often, you know, the prophets would spend months, maybe even years in prison because of their faith in God. And any time in this process, I mean, think about it. The prophet could have said, really, God, where are you? I mean, God, if I am speaking for you, why, why did you allow this to happen to me? You ever do that? God, I love you. Why, am I, why is this going on in my life? But the prophets maintained their faithfulness. And as time went by, God did exactly what the prophet said that God was going to do. And now, all of a sudden, in the eyes of the people, the prophet's a hero. I mean, he's like the smartest guy in the world. They realize he really does represent God. So James, as he's writing, says, do you remember the prophets? Do you remember how when they came on the scene for a period of time, they looked like the biggest idiots in the world? They looked like they didn't have a clue. They were out to lunch. James says, do you remember what happened when God finally came through, sometimes years and decades later, when God finally came through and did exactly what the prophets said that God was going to do? You remember how the people thought of the prophets yeah they were like man that guy's a genius that guy's the smartest guy in the world and James says in the same way just like the prophets you got to learn to be patient it may be years it may be decades but you got to understand God is at work God keeps his promises and one day that suffering that pain that you so despise one day it will be done away with and then he gives us a more current illustration in verse 11 as you know we count as blessed those who have persevered. So, so James says, hey, think about the people around you in your life, your sphere of influence. They've endured all kinds of suffering, all kinds of pain, all kinds of trials, all kinds of tough times. But in that process, they've actually grown. They've maintained their faith. I mean, can you think of anybody in your life like that? If you can't, how about Lenny? I mean, we've gotten to know him in this series. How do you feel about him? As you hear him share from his experiences of life or being a World War II prisoner of war, losing a son to cancer, all the things that he's gone through in life, you listen to him share, do you think he's an idiot? Do you think he's a fool? No, we watch him, we listen to him. You know what we think? I wish I could be that kind of person. I wish I had that kind of faith, right? They're examples to us, and that's the point that James is making. And then he gives us the best illustration of all, verse 11. He says, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. And this is a great example because you remember the story of Job. You know, we talk about the patience of Job. He gets up one morning, flips on CNN, grabs the USA Today, a cup of coffee, and in about 15 minutes, his world explodes and falls apart. He loses everything he has of any value. All 10 of his children are killed in a freak storm. God strikes his body physically. So he's a great example because Job, I mean, he's, he was a man whose circumstances were so bad. 
He just naturally assumed what we would assume, God has abandoned me, right? But the reality was, the whole time he was going through this, he had God's undivided attention. I mean, God is looking on from heaven, and he's like, go, Job. You go, boy. You keep, hey, angels, check out Job. Hey, dude, he's a dude. He's a stud. Look at Job. Go, right? You know? And so when Job, Job, job <laughs> that's pretty funny. But anyway, <laughs> when Job was going, where's Goad? You know, I don't look at it that way. But God's like, Job, I'm right here. You can't see me, but I'm right here. I can't intervene yet. But don't worry. Everything's working out just as I planned. I got it all under control. You just keep going. You just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Job, don't lose faith. You know what I thought of? I thought of the song we sang earlier. Our God is fighting for us always. Our God is fighting for us. No matter what we feel, we are not alone. We are not alone. And the Bible says that Job persevered to the end. And, and, and now, see, we have the recorded story, so we get to see it from start to finish. James says, hey, remember Job? God never abandoned him. Job felt like that, but God didn't. I mean, God was just working behind the scenes the entire time. And if you get to the end of the book, you know what you see? You see God was faithful. God was just. God was merciful. In fact, this is what it says in Job chapter 42, verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. In other words, God gave him back more than he lost. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys, verse 13. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. By the way, that's the grace of God. God didn't give him more kids. Ten was enough, right? And God said, I'm just, just going to give you the ten. We'll go with that, right? And so James basically says to us in this passage, Listen, be patient. Be patient. As Christians, yeah, do all you can to ease the suffering and pain in the world. But understand, understand that the ultimate solution to pain and suffering in this world isn't in this world. The ultimate solution to pain and suffering in this life isn't in this life. It will come one day, but not till Jesus returns. And that's why he concludes in verse 11. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He said, you can't forget the nature of God. You can't forget that. You can't forget that if you'll just be patient, it will become evident to you that God is an incredible God of mercy and compassion. That's it. It will never change. He's immutable. That's one of his characteristics. It means he's the same yesterday, today, forever. Always will be full of compassion. Always will be full of mercy. But you know what? Sometimes you're just going to have to be patient for a while in order to see it. By the way, isn't it true in any arena of life that demands patience? When we're impatient, we lose out. You ever thought about that? I mean, what happens when you're fishing and you don't show patience? Do you get more fish? No, you lose out. What happens if you're an investor but you don't show patience? Do you get a higher yield on your money? No, you'll lose out every time. What happens if you plant a crop, a garden in your yard, and, and you try to speed up the process, you don't show patience? Do you yield a bigger crop? No, you, you lose out. And this is especially true relationally. When we don't show patience, you know, in our lives, doesn't it just complicate things? For example, I've never heard this scenario. Our problem is we should have gotten married earlier. Never heard that. 
I've heard a lot of people say, you know, we were young. We, we probably should have waited a while. We should have probably got to know each other a little bit more. But I've never heard anybody say, you know, we ought to have gotten married earlier, right? I've never heard someone say, you know what? We should have just bought that car without taking time to think about it. I've never heard that scenario. And it's because we all know that when we are impatient, when we make rash decisions, things don't get better. They always get worse. And so what James is saying is this. Christians, be patient. Be patient. After all, what are your options? There actually are a couple. You can decide, since there's pain and suffering in the world, there must not be a God. And I've seen a lot of Christians go down that road. And I know a lot of unbelievers, non-Christians, who can't quite get there because of this. And I just want you to listen carefully because I know this is a big deal for some of you. If your problem with God is that God can't exist because there's so much pain and suffering in the world, all you've proven is this. All you've proven is, is that God, the way you would like him to exist, doesn't exist. And that's actually true. So you've come up with a picture of what God should look like. You've, you've come up with a job description for God and what he should do. And then you went on a search for that God and you say, I can't find him. And so you torped the picture and you concluded that God doesn't exist. And I want you to know, you are exactly right. That God does not exist, not the way you want him to exist. But when you get right down to it, that doesn't say anything about whether or not there, there's a God, you know. And I hope you'll just keep that in mind. In fact, if, if, if your whole response to pain and suffering is that there just is no God, and I don't, I don't mean this to put you down, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but I, ju I just kind of feel sorry for you. Philip Yancey said this. He says, there's only one thing worse than disappointment with God. It's disappointment without God. You know? See, the tragedy of deciding there is no God, the tragedy is that your pain and suffering doesn't go away. It's still there. The only thing that goes away is, is your hope. Because, you know, all of a sudden you're, you're left in a world that has no purpose. You're left in a world that has no meaning. You're never going to make sense out of the things that have literally driven you crazy. So you can decide, since there's pain and suffering in the world, there must not be a God. Or option number two, you could decide, well, there is a God. I believe that. I just don't like him. You ever feel like that? I'm just mad at you, God. I'm angry at him because he's not acting the way I think he should act. So I'm just going to take my faith and go home, right? But once again, what have you solved? Does the pain go away? No. Life any easier? No. Is there any less tragedy in the world? Nope. More people being fed? More diseases cured? Mm-mm. And once again, you're not only disappointed with God, now you're disappointed without God. And again, you've turned your back on the only person, <laughs> the only person who can make any sense out of the pain and suffering that we deal with every day. And I'm just telling you as your friend, you will live your life disappointed and disillusioned. I mean, when you get right down to it, there's no way to make sense of all the pain and suffering in the world apart from saying, God, I don't like it but you're God and I'm not. And you're God that's not made in my image and you're God that's not really interested in what my job description is for you and God, I'll just be patient and I'll love you and I'll serve you and God, I'm just gonna warn you ahead of time, there are gonna be days when I'm mad and angry at you but that's okay, you can deal with it. 
But God, since I really don't have any other option, I am going to learn to wait patiently for what you have started to finish. As you know, uh, I've spent quite a bit of time in Uganda over the last few years, and where we have kind of really focused our work is up in the northern part of Uganda in the Gulu region. In fact, that's where we built the worship center that we dedicated last year for those 1,200 orphans that are living in the village in Lamanadera. And that's really where Kony uh, had his children's army. And, and what would happen was the soldiers, they would go into homes at night and kidnap the children, and they would be forced to fight in Kony's army as rebels. And we met a 13 or 14-year-old boy, I think Laura was with me, and he was part of the Restore Tour that was getting ready to go around the world. And he told us the story of when the soldiers came at night to take him from his family, forcing him to serve in the military, that when his mom tried to intervene, two soldiers held out her arms and they cut her head off while he stood there and watched. And I'm thinking, how does a 13, 14-year-old child ever recover from that? And not only that, many of the, many of the, young girls that were kidnapped and forced to, to serve in the army. They were raped over and over again by these soldiers, and they have multiple children now. On top of that, if they ever tried to escape and they were caught, they were brought back, their noses, their lips were cut off. And it was kind of like, don't ever try this again. And so when Laura and I are there, we're up in the area, and we're meeting these women who have no noses, they have no lips. And, you know, we're, we're hearing the stories of these children, and it's hard to believe that there's that kind of evil in the world. And i got to be honest with you, as I'm listening to these stories, I could not help but think, yeah, God, where were you on that day, you know? And then Christine, who, who runs the women's ministry that's restoring these young girls. They're outcasts in society because they've come back with all these children that are the fathers were these rebel soldiers and... Society doesn't want them, and there's nowhere for them to go. And as she's working with them, with just the biggest smile on her face, she said, but you know what? God has used this tragedy to allow us to, to lead thousands of these children and young adults into a saving relationship with him. And in my immature, finite little mind, I thought, God, I certainly see the good that you've brought out of this horrible situation of pain and suffering, but God, in, in my way of seeing the world, uh, the pain and suffering, it, it sure seems to appear that it outweighs the good. But then I have to remember this. If there really is a heaven, and if there really is a hell, and people really do go there forever, then suffering in this, this little window of time, the 60, 70, 80 years that we call life, from God's perspective, it's actually a good thing if somehow it draws us in to a saving relationship with him, whereas we now get to spend all eternity with him in a place called heaven where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no sorrow. And if, that, if that's the case, in God's infinite wisdom and power and love and mercy and compassion, even though we would just love him to come back and just kick everybody's butt and get this place straightened out. It's better that he waits. And it's better that as Christians we be patient with him. And sure, we're to do all we can to right the wrongs in the world. And sure, we're to do all we can to ease suffering in this world because we are the hands and feet of Jesus. 
But even while we're doing it, we have to keep in the forefront of our mind the ultimate solution to pain and suffering in this world will not be found in this world. It will not be found in this life. But there is coming a day when Jesus will return and right every wrong. But you got to understand, the reason he delays isn't because of his lack of interest. It's because of his personal interest. It's not because of his lack of compassion. It's because of his compassion. It's not because of his lack of mercy. It's because of his mercy. It's because there really is a heaven. <laughs> it's because there really is a hell. And it's because people really do spend eternity there. And that's why our Heavenly Father waits. And nobody said it better than Peter in 2 Peter 3, 9. He says, it's, not, it's because he's not willing that anyone perishes. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but he wants to leave that door open that all can come to repentance. And so he's full of compassion and mercy, and he waits. And I think this is what James wants us to understand. If we could just begin to see our pain and suffering through that lens, you know what we'll do? We'll patiently wait for his return when everything will be made right. Or we'll live our 60, 70 years. We'll take our last breath. And Paul says, absent with the body is present with the Lord. And we will slip into heaven. Either way, as Christians, it will all be made right. And the suffering, the pain, the sorrow will end. James says that's the perspective you need. In fact, what's interesting in the book of James is James begins with suffering. And he ends with suffering. But can I go back to a verse where he said this in James chapter 1, verse 12? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, when he's been patient, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I don't know what that means. The Bible gives us a little bit, but I tell you this. Somehow in heaven, there is going to be a special reward for people who go through suffering, pain, trials, tough time, and they maintain their faith in God, that he loves them, and they never question that love. This, it's not an easy mess. I wish I had an ABC, one, two, three. If you'll do these things, your pain and suffering will go away. But I'll leave you with this hope. <laughs> As Christians, one day, whether Jesus returns or we go there to meet him, it'll be done away with. And that's our hope. That's our hope. Let's pray together. God, first of all, I want to just pray for the people who are in, middle, in the middle of pain and suffering right now. This is tough. This is not the answer they were looking for this weekend. Father, I realize this isn't theory for them. Maybe right now there's, there's someone who has an appointment in divorce court this week or before a bankruptcy judge. Or maybe they have a sick child and the doctors can't figure it out. Or maybe they have a dying parent. Maybe it's a health challenge. And they've prayed and they've prayed and they've prayed and they've prayed and they're just looking for some kind of relief. God, I'm going to ask, would you please open the eyes of all of us and as James challenged us, help us recalibrate our hearts. Help us to bring our hearts somehow back into balance and see this world the way that you intend for us to see it. And God, I pray that somehow you'll grow up our faith and you'll give us the faith that places more value 
on the salvation of our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our roommates and our classmates. We place more value on their salvation than we place on our own comfort. Help us to see as you see. Help us to respond as you respond. And help us to be patient and help us to be expectant as we wait for your return. Even as John said in the book of Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We give you the praise and glory for what you're doing in our lives because you will give us the grace to be able to sustain through any trial you bring our way. We thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.